Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you find fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Daniel Boss, media production specialist here at the Acton Institute and the producer of this podcast and other podcasts in our network. And this week, we're joined by a special guest, Titus Teshra. Titus is executive director of the American Cinema Foundation and the author of numerous movie reviews for us here at the Acton Institute. This week, we're going to be talking all about the world of entertainment, and we want to start with Two films, Titus, that you reviewed for us uh, here at Acton that have been uh, all the rage for the last couple of weeks. Talking, of course, about Oppenheimer and Barbie. One you loved, one you did not. Uh, Why don't we start with Oppenheimer? And uh, this is a film that both Daniel and I saw the night before it opened. Uh, We are fortunate here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to be one of the 19 cities or 19 theaters that can show 70 millimeter IMAX. And if you, uh, just for everybody else out there who's listening, if you have the opportunity to see it in that format, go see it in that format. It is it is quite something. Uh, Titus, why, uh, we'll put the review in the show notes for people to read, but why don't you just share what were your thoughts on Oppenheimer? What uh, what do you like about it? Yeah, sure. Would love to. Eric, Daniel, thanks for having me on the show. It's uh it's a privilege to be the more or less unofficial movie guy for Acton to, uh, to to write so much from a conservative point of view for a conservative audience about an industry that's notoriously liberal and in certain ways flirting with uh, you know woke and all of this stuff. And perhaps uh, Oppenheimer is my uh, entry point to what's in it for conservatives because it's such a, it's such an exception to what most of Hollywood offers. And uh, it, it's such a great thing to notice that it's a massive hit. It's maybe the first thing to say about the movie. It is a very big hit. Uh, it's already grossed $400 million globally, and it looks like it'll do another 200 maybe a bit more. It's a, a great sign for artists. It's a great sign for uh, people who want movies made for adults. And uh, if it is still permissible to say so, movies made for men. Uh, that's part of the... Barbieheimer issue. Uh, Barbie is a movie for women. Oppenheimer, although we can't quite say that, is a movie for men. And uh, apparently people have turned out in in such large numbers after all of these crazy pandemic years. I think partly because of what you're saying, this is an IMAX movie. Uh, IMAX was maybe the last thing the theaters developed to attract audiences with the notion that cinema still has more to offer. The technology is not uh, fully developed. There's more to be done. There are more attractions, more wonderment. There's uh, the magic of the movies. It's still happening. And in our time, as you said, the Dune movies, Denis Villeneuve is very interested in the technology, but above all, it's Christopher Nolan who has become as much as the unofficial ambassador for this technology, for uh, you know, people might have heard of 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter, and probably don't know what the difference is. It sounds like it's two times bigger, maybe. Uh, it, it's not. It's, it's much bigger. It's uh, differently done. And the result is that the surface projection is eight times larger. 
at comparable resolution. It's just the biggest, most detailed, sharpest, uh, best colored and then contrasted thing you can see on screen. And it, it allows for all sorts of marvels that uh, I think uh, attracted people to Oppenheimer. From close-ups of Killian Murphy's face as J. Robert Oppenheimer to, of course, the uh, shooting, uh, recreating the atomic tests at Los Alamos, the Trinity test. You get a, a strange range of phenomena that, that you could uh, visualize as an artist, and the audience obviously is in love with it. And uh, so just as an experience, IMAX has delivered something that seems like it could save the theatrical experience, which of course has been for those of us in the movie reviewing, movie anything business, the big question since at least COVID hit, can you save the theaters and therefore can you save the movie making business? There's no reason to have a Hollywood enterprise if you don't make the Christopher Nolan movies. If you want to make TV, for example, which might be streamed casually by people going around the room doing their things or, stream, or, or, or scrolling on a phone, or you're making TV for people who watch it possibly on their small phones, there's no reason to have the whole Hollywood studio system. There's no reason to have stars. In fact, it's not possible. You have to have something on this scale to, to, to justify it. And I don't mean just in terms of the experience for the audience, all of these amazing things. Even the sound in IMAX is amazing. Uh, uh, the, the audience I saw the Oppenheimer movie with was largely spellbound for the three hours, which as people keep saying, is mostly a couple of men talking in a room. And, uh, and yet people were spellbound because it's so well done. But I think also you could say for the story, this is a movie, as I said, for adults. It's, it's about World War II and it's about the atomic bombs, but also the question of science and technology and politics of war and peace, of American progress and of danger. All of these things are wrapped up in this wonderfully cinematic story. And uh, therefore it's the kind of movie that people are likely to see again and again. And since it's so uh, of the moment or, or it has made such a mark on people at this moment, it's likely that it will uh, help people understand some of the technological questions or, or help them at least reflect on the technological questions we're facing now. It's, uh, it, it's in a way the promise of the movies. It's middle brow art. It's exceptionally beautiful and technologically innovative and all that, but it's also about bringing together high concerns of science and politics to a popular audience. And then for, for, for everybody in there in the theater to, to see it all together, feel the same emotions, come away with certain memories. It's supposed to make something memorable, first of all. And then, of course, it does that by making it emotionally powerful. So uh, that's what you get that's the astonishing experience that's i think why uh, the movie is still making money at a remarkable pace that uh, was was completely unpredicted partly of course because its competition is barbie which is an incredibly popular movie now that is you know a blockbuster as people usually think of it it's it's going to make a billion dollars what i found interesting about the uh, the oppenheimer experience is it caused me to reflect on why I used to want to go to a movie theater to see a movie in the first place. Now, I've got two kids. Um, I've got a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. And there are a good amount of films, even new ones that are coming out, that 
the decision we're making now is not the same one that my mother and I would make when I was a kid and my roughly my kid's age. If you wanted to see a movie, a new movie, you had to go to the theater to do it. Well, now a lot of them are available via streaming, um, even shortly after they premiere in the theater. So what I'm looking for personally is, you know, if it's if it's a family thing, I'm looking to run the calculus of do we want to get out of the house kind of experience and accepting the cost that is going to come along with that, the cost of movie tickets and inevitably what I have to buy at the concession counter uh, to keep my children happy. But most in, in most cases, you know, there's going to be the, the 10-year-old needs to go to the bathroom. Uh, so we can pause the movie. The 10-year-old can go to the bathroom when we're watching it at home. Can't really do that in a movie theater. Uh, what, what I find so compelling about Christopher Nolan and what pleases me so much, and, and Titus, you pointed this out, um, the amount that it continues to make money, it is – I saw someone observe over the weekend, if you look at the performance of Nolan's films financially, this is starting to perform like one of the Batman films, which is remarkable for, as you pointed out, uh, a three-hour-long film of adults talking. Uh, it's two and a half hours of that and roughly 30 minutes of the sequence of the uh, Trinity test of the atomic bomb. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, and it shows, I think, that if you – not just if you make compelling stories, which I think that has always been one of, to me, Christopher Nolan's strengths. His stories have always been interesting and captivating. But if you make a film to be seen in a theater like that, there are people who are going to want to see it in a theater like that for not just the uh, technical reasons that we've I've hinted at as well – but one of the things you pointed out as well, that communal experience of seeing a movie. I mean, I think we, you know, the audience that we, Daniel and I saw it with, were similarly kind of spellbound by not just the, um, the, the quality of the film itself, but the spectacle of it and uh, the craft in filmmaking which for me, I was kind of sold on this when uh, I saw the story that Nolan recreated the Trinity atomic bomb test without any CGI, which in in a way is almost like a, a retreat into an older way of movie making. And the, the uh, comparison that I've I've always drawn on these things is, you know, you look at all the over CGI'd movies that are out now. And compare them in your mind to something like Jurassic Park, which came out in 1993, which holds up really, really well for a film with effects from 1993 and a little bit of CGI. And the reason is because they minimize the CGI, it, and it's edited well. It is a Steven Spielberg blockbuster in, in every form of that uh, that could be. It holds up well because it's a well-crafted film, and I think the CGI experience has given directors so many opportunities to make disposable products now, and unsurprisingly, they're forgotten about pretty quickly. Yes, that's that's true, and I think that there is there is something to this experiential nature of, of films, and when it's well-made, on top of the fact that it's a spectacle, you know, those, those come together, I think, so, so very well. You look at some of these big spectacle movies that we've had recently. We've had Oppenheimer. We've had Top Gun Maverick. Um, I think those are those are two two films that are so incredibly well made, and also just are best seen in a theater. I mean, but they will still hit at home. On the other hand, you you could have spectacle films that don't don't work as well. Something like Gravity. You know, Gravity in IMAX was just one of the most yes. 
overwhelming experiences I've ever had. And then watching it, you know, at home on, uh, you know, 40, 40 inch TV or something, or even on a tablet, like that's just not the same. You're not going to feel the same way you feel when Sandra Bullock is out in space. Um, and so I think being able to be in a theater and, and then having that communal experience. I mean, for me, I, I'm excited to see Barbie, but I don't plan to see it in the theater because, you know, it's not something that I feel other than maybe the communal aspect, which maybe missed the boat on that, just being later in its run. It's just not something I need to see in the theater. Uh, maybe that's a good place to dovetail into um, the other of the dual phenomenon films that we have uh, uh, all been talking about. Uh, Barbie, which you also reviewed for us. Atiz, feel free to talk about what were your thoughts on this? And I, I'm curious, you uh, will put, again, your review in the show notes so people can read it. Um, you were not a fan. And uh, one of the things that I will confess, as listeners to this program will know, is probably being a little bit too online. Um, I found interesting, and I wonder how much of this is, at least within uh, kind of right-wing communities, is comes from a desire to be somewhat just contrarian for contrarian's sake that I found a lot of people arguing over this kind of is Barbie this woke film um, about the problems of the patriarchy or is it secretly this deeply conservative film? And I've seen people arguing about this. So, uh, Titus, what what were your thoughts about the film and what do you make of this uh, argument about the what, what we should take away from Barbie. I indeed really disliked the movie. The only reason I watched it was to review it. I uh, wanted to do a kindness to my readers and uh, my duty as a film reviewer. And so it's a funny review. It's not uh, an angry review, but it is uh, dismissive. And uh, I think uh, further, the only reason I did that is because it's such a massive phenomenon. Barbie is the mom and daughter movie of America. There has not been such a thing in quite a while. I wouldn't care to speculate how long. Uh, it's uh, If you want to compare it to something, you'd have to compare it to Taylor Swift, which is the same sort of phenomena. Uh, it's about how important women have become in American society and entertainment and a celebration of all that. And uh, therefore it has also separated the people who celebrate from people who don't. And in fact, it's much more divisive than I think most people understand, since most people are, so to speak, reason about these things without even looking at the America that exists. That is, in modern America, people my age, say, under 40, maybe a small minority are married, maybe. Probably it's not yet, it's not a majority anymore. Uh, and and uh, further, uh, not even uh, dating, so to speak, exists anymore. So the, for, for the younger half of America, or maybe it's just a third, uh, it's uh, men and women don't really get along uh, in, in any aspect of uh, private life or social life, something like that. And so, you know, so precisely because it's such a woman movie, even a mom and daughter movie, it's not a movie for young men. It's not a movie for boys. And uh, presumably adult men also dislike it, uh, aside from whatever sentimentality they may have towards their own families. And uh, so the this sociological fact somehow has gone unobserved, partly because, as you say, it seems like people are stuck in a world of uh, social media gossip where everybody has takes about 
what is the true interpretation of this movie or how should you think about it? Uh, if, if people enjoy it, you know, you can't take away their joy and chatter on social media. That's fine. But it's meaningless. The point is, it's a massive, massive success. It's going to be a billion dollar. People will make profits on this, the likes of which uh, I don't think people uh, imagine. It's going to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And the result, of course, uh, is going to be a lot of stupid movies that try to repeat this kind of success without wondering about what it is that gets uh, women so excited rather than what gets uh, people who comment in the commentariat, uh, people who chatter in the chattering classes uh, to, to talk about it. So it's maybe there's something to be said uh, in a positive and appreciative mood about the film and, and to understand it better. Usually you want to uh, talk about the things you like. You're likelier to pay attention to them. Uh, if, if you want to sound uh, more philosophical, you could say that love is the mood of knowledge. But uh, I, I speak uh, from a position of utter and complete rejection, not just uh, in, in being the more or less lone critic, as far as I've been able to tell, who stands up for men in this question, but uh, because I think it's uh, it, it's incredibly defective as storytelling. It's, it does not offer much of a vision of the, the society we are in, uh, except uh, through a few allegorical motifs. I, I try to get at them in the review. It's not entirely dismissive, my review, but it's, uh, uh, you could say that it's the, the, the movie Barbie is all about pretending that everything I've said about the social situation in America does not exist. And uh, it, I think that's uh, childish from any point of view, except uh, success worship and selling toys. It's, uh, and, and in terms of storytelling, it uh, only acknowledges this reality by saying that Barbie is all about being alone. Uh, there, there are moments in the Barbie movie when you see this, uh, it's a joke about the Stanley Kubrick movie, 2001 Space Odyssey, but instead of apes discovering tools, technology, and therefore war, it's baby girls discovering, uh, it, it's girls discovering uh, Barbie dolls and uh, smashing um, baby dolls. Girls are not going to be playing mother anymore. Young American women are not about the life of, uh, well, nature, to say nothing else. They are going to want to be Barbies. And then, of course, Barbie itself is uh, discarded for... Uh, for it's not clear to me what it sounds like a kind of nice nihilism where you go through life wandering and life uh and uh you know barbie is supposed to be existentially awakened by the thought of death but uh, uh in reality it's just uh, how to figure out how to be alone and it doesn't really have anything to say about how to figure out how to be alone this may shock people to think that you know it's america you expect a certain kind of storytelling it's not about getting rid of motherhood and children is not about even getting rid of Barbie as a, a goddess of love, the American Af commercialized Aphrodite, and, and therefore ending up alone and kind of sterile. But that's exactly what the story is. Just you're going to be alone. There will not be love in your life. There will not be family in your life. In that sense, it is a description of the reality with which young American women live. Uh, it's crazy. But maybe this is as close to the reality as anybody in our society can come. This sort of vague, somewhat ironical, somewhat frivolous storytelling that seems to be based on desperation and fear of death. After all, again, this is just what happens in the movie. You can also see it in the trailers. It's no spoiler. Barbie just starts fearing death. 
it's somewhat interesting then that uh, with that theme that you have identified that uh, the 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 summer film about fearing death is not the one about the invention of the atomic bomb, which is uh, uh, kind of a remarkable thing to say. Uh, I mean, people pointing to the box office performance of Barbie. Uh, I mean, the 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 pushback I will give on that is is you know, typically, or at least what I remember from my childhood is you would come up with this IP, you would turn it into a film, and then you would merchandise it, right? This is where you get the the great joke in Mel Brooks' Spaceballs, where he meets, um, you know, Mel Brooks plays uh, Yogurt, who is supposed to be the Yoda character, and talks to him all about merchandising, 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 Spaceballs, the flamethrower, Spaceballs, the lunchbox, Spaceballs, the cereal, we're doing this in reverse right now with this film. We have had decades of merchandising of the product that is being portrayed in this film. It shouldn't be a surprise that it is performing as well at the box office as it is because there is a deep, long-run, multi-generational investment by a lot of people in the intellectual property that this film is revolving around. Um, what is more remarkable is when we compare these two, going back to the point I was making earlier, the incredible box office performance of something like Oppenheimer, which is, you know, to say it again, is three hours of people talking in rooms, uh, a half of a half hour of that being uh, outside in the explosion of an atomic bomb is pretty remarkable. And when again, when you tie it back to some of the other films that have been performing remarkably well, and I, I want to get to Sound of Freedom uh, as well, which uh, Titus, you also reviewed for us, uh, but also, again, Top Gun Maverick is another example. Um, it, it is interesting to see the kinds of films that have really actually hit with audiences and brought them back to the theater and the ones that have not nearly been as successful in in doing so, but there does seem to be more social concern around the subject matter of the films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. One of the other stories I saw over the weekend since we've been talking about IMAX is... The story of uh, a couple of upcoming films, uh, which I think actually ties into a lot of the social commentary connected to films that we've we've been talking about here. Uh, Dune, the second Dune film, uh, is going to have an extended run in IMAX theaters. And the story was that it was going to bump uh, the Marvels out of IMAX theaters. And... This, I think, is kind of the commentary, and and Titus, I want to get you to weigh in on this. Uh, This is the kind of commentary we get about a lot of films now, where the conversation about that decision is not really the one on its own merits, because that decision on its own merits makes complete sense, right? Dune 2 was filmed on IMAX cameras, on IMAX film, to be shown in IMAX theaters. Again, just like we were talking about with Christopher Nolan— this is someone who is making films in, you know, really embracing the craft of making films and uh, doing it in a way that was, is supposed to be seen in a movie theater. Not that the Marvels necessarily isn't, but it is not made and filmed in that style. But the argument about it is... You know, oh, not surprising that we're bumping a film directed by a like, first major film or I guess first Marvel film directed by a black woman and starring three f- women in the lead. 
uh, is getting bumped out of the theaters. Everything has to be a conversation about one of these dynamics, not just actually the most logical explanation, which has really no nefarious content to it whatsoever, which is one of these films was meant to be seen in IMAX theaters and the other really doesn't matter all that much. But this is... Titus, why do we keep ending back up in these conversations about the social concerns around movies rather than, I would say in this case, either the simple explanation, which makes sense, or rather than in conversations about movies themselves or the quality of the storytelling, we spend more time, I think, talking about you know, the social impact of the makeup of the production team or the people who are starring in the film than we do actually talking about the, the story being told. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And you're, uh, and I think, uh, look, we just have to square with the fact that these conflicts are inevitable because they're conflicts between men and women in the country I've outlined, which is no longer a country where the men and women go along. Barbie is a woman's movie made by a woman, and it's very mediocre with a bit of polish on it. And Oppenheimer is a movie that is at least touched by greatness. And, uh, and you know, it's an all-man uh, effort. So you can say, well, okay, Nolan has always worked with his wife, who is his producer. Surely that's a strong woman that should say something about uh, a world where we can all get along. So he used to say, can't we all just get along? But probably nobody's going to care about that. As you say, in this case, too, it's... This guy who is a, a guy made the movie that is a guy's movie. It's galactic warfare. It's religious fanaticism versus tyranny. It's uh, all of these things, as, and there's almost no women in it. And uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, people are going to be angry at the fact that the guy movie that is beautiful, amazingly well shot. Uh, I've also seen Dune Part 1 at home on a big screen, and it's still quite impressive. You, you look at that stuff, wow. Uh, this one is probably going to be even better. That's my guess. So yes, uh, all the guys would like to see it. Will uh, enough women want to see it? I don't know. I cannot speak for the women. Uh, I, I should say I especially cannot speak for the women. I did not see it coming that Barbie would be such a big hit. I only reviewed it once I noticed it was. I am obviously not the intended audience and uh, I'm of quite a limited perspective in that regard. But uh, the Marvels is uh, a piece of ideological dread, it looks like. We'll have to see it to confirm our suspicions, but this is the suspicion, and we can say it honestly. And this shows a kind of uh, crisis in the industry, and this is an industry in crisis. Uh, Barbie Heimer brought both the men and the women, both the adults and the young. Everybody went back to the theaters for the biggest double feature in recent years, with the biggest July box office in recent years. It's hard to overstate how important that is for an industry that has been declining since 2018 in a worrisome, worrisome way. So just to say very quickly, the box office in the year to date uh, um, is 25% below what it was in 2018, 20% below what it was in 2019 before COVID. It's not back there. It's most of the way back there. It's not all the way back there. And these movies are part of what made it come back there, as did, by the way, the all-American, very silly, but kind of good-hearted, childish movie that has no kind of woke or feminist drama or culture war, Super Mario Brothers. This silly little game that people love, I guess, especially kids, and uh, appeals to the childishness in boys, and stars Chris Pratt, most childish, boyish, uh, 6'3", 4 guy out there. <laughs> Uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, that's the biggest hit of the year. It's bigger even than Barbie because the family is still a bigger audience than the female audience. So these are the kinds of things that are trying to hold the box office 
together and therefore the theatrical experience and therefore the movie business, but also offer Americans something to do together where they can like each other, where they can just be around other people and maybe you're annoyed that somebody's popcorn chewing, but on the other hand, you maybe like chewing popcorn yourself. And uh, anyway, it's uh, kind of fun to laugh with everybody else when they're laughing or gasp when they're gasping. It's, it's, it's a good thing for people after all this is isolation to realize that there are all these Americans around and it's kind of nice to be around them. So in a way, that's what the box office is about, but it's very hard to, to take that seriously as a business when this is our options. Are, can we allow men to make movies? Can we even use the word men when we talk about these things? Because that's what gets uh, people excited enough to think movies might have at least a sliver of greatness. It's so exciting. Or must it be ideological conformity peppered with endless gossip about is the ideological conformity sufficiently ideological or sufficiently conformist? And uh, how much uh, of the woundedness and the victimhood and the insult taking and the resentment and the envy can possibly nurse in a media that seems to be even more weirdly woke than Hollywood itself already is? These are your options. It's as stark as Dune versus uh, the Marvels. It's as stark as Denis Villeneuve trying to give people a cinematic vision based on a famous, very popular series of novels, Dune, published in the mid-60s, sold untold tens of millions of copies, and then so should have a popularity going for it. Versus, on the other hand, the juggernaut of our times, the Marvel Universe, which is single-handedly responsible for vast profits, but also the assassination of cinema, so to speak. It's uh, it's just mediocre trash. And unfortunately, once you settle for that and you say, okay, we're going to be doing this constantly, every season, then people will start asking, if we're serving trash, why can't it be woke trash? If we're just doing mediocre stuff that people are too embarrassed, to speak of honestly, then why can't it be the stuff that flatters at least some political activism that's now arising? If it's not going to be anywhere near uh, like art, if it's not going to be somebody trying to amaze the American audience, then why can't it be also ideologically pleasing? And there's no good answer to these things. Once you concede that Marvel is the, 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 the cinematic experience of America, then you're going to get woke Marvel next. And the fact that we are not too far deep into it yet suggests that maybe, like with saving the cinematic experience, there is an alternative. Maybe America doesn't want to commit to these things. Indeed, Disney has taken hits on all fronts this year. All sorts of movies have failed. And on the other hand, the theaters are doing, uh, pardon me, the, the Disney parks are doing badly. And uh, so the woke disunification uh, has not completely succeeded. There are massive business problems. Who knows what will happen? They change CEOs again. It's uh, back to Bob Iger, the guy who got them into this woke position in the first place. And uh, we'll see how all of that plays out. Indeed, the you know entertainment for America, the American family, that's what's at stake. It should be something that interests many serious people, if at least they are aware of this, that the American family really, really needs Disney to keep peace, just to have enough fun, to have enough options for entertainment, so that everybody keeps the domestic peace. That's what really it's about. It's how American families pacify their children. It's not ideal. Maybe we're not going to brag about it, but it works, okay? So let's at least try and take care of that.
it requires some discussion about what the hell Bob Iger is doing to this business uh, that is now, you know, a, a pillar of domestic security, if not national security. <laughs> so the problem over the uh, theatrical experiences and the men versus women movies is not trivial and is not even exactly a cultural war. It looks like it because of the styles of debate. Obviously, especially online, young men are going to be very aggressive because they here and then are, are hateful of the fact that everybody's too nice otherwise and they feel left out. Obviously, on the female side of things, there's going to be, you know, not a typical desire to take offense and to complain and to uh, claim a certain kind of victimhood. Woke, you could say, is the newest, most coolest way of woman's tears, an ancient uh, fact of life. Women sometimes cry. It's, I think, still tolerable to mention that, but uh, barely. So uh, these are dramas, uh, to some extent, simply of expression, some of how men behave, how women behave, and what we're coming in a society where the men and the women don't deal with each other well enough, that they feel they should put up with each other, forbear, and maybe try to make it work. But there are deeper issues that uh, aren't just to do with entertainment, but with what Americans hope for, from what it means for uh, the American family to have a nice vacation, or at least a nice outing, or at least a nice Sunday in with Disney Plus. That also works for a lot of people. And in the pandemic years, it may have saved some families, if we're being honest. So it's, it's you know, uh, we need to talk about these things. They're, they're, it would be useful to not uh, collapse this aspect uh, of our uh, society, the entertainment, the things that amuse, but occasionally inspire. But, uh, but then I think that means that we somehow have to get at the ground agreement that is not as frivolous or as hysterical as ideology. It can't be about being woke. It had better be about uh, things like the American family, if we're talking Disney. And if we're talking about these other aspects like Christopher Nolan or Denis Villeneuve's Dune, it had better be about the hopes and the aspirations of young American men. Because if we're being honest, uh, you know, a, a lot of stuff that we expect uh, out of uh, technology that we see in the movies is really about getting American men to do the sorts of things that American men did, as you see in the Oppenheimer movie. You had all of these guys, soldiers, uh, you know, scientists, uh, engineers, a lot of workers, a lot of people worked to do a lot of things at Los Alamos and otherwise. All of these American men built, you know, not just the war machine, but modern America after World War II. And to some extent, they have to be inspired, not just entertained. And uh, if, they, if young men see Nolan movies, they are incredibly inspired. This is, you know, with the secret about Christopher Nolan. He is the director that has inspired for 15, 16 years now young American men. And there is nobody else who is even trying. And if you think that's uh, of great importance or if you have a kind of respect for the needs and the uh, place in society of young men, I think that should matter. I certainly do. So I decided to uh, raise a stink in a way to make a fuss about it. But uh, but other people might be much nicer about it and yet uh, be quite as appreciative and, and see that this is an important thing for our society. It's not otherwise going very well with young men. Do not take this away from them. So as we were, as we were talking, I was looking at um, the Marvel box office take and I was surprised to find that Captain Marvel was actually the eighth highest grossing Marvel film, according to Box Office Mojo, which is surprising because, I mean, that, that feels like about the time when Marvel kind of hit this storytelling downturn. Uh, this was the last film right before uh, Avengers Endgame. It really kind of, they needed to tell that story uh, to have Captain Marvel really have the impact in Endgame. Since then, um, you know, Marvel movies have still been making 
a fair amount of money. Uh, Wakanda Forever made Black Panther. Wakanda Forever made uh, 450 million dollars, uh, which was just about 25 million more than Captain Marvel. But you know, this, seeing lately, Marvel TV has not been very good. Um, the storytelling has just been extremely lackluster. And you compare that to something like Dune, which you know is this established story. You know, people have been reading these books for decades. It's been sort of a, a cult hit and it's finally being brought to the screen in a way that is sort of popularly accessible. I mean, we had the uh, David Lynch Dune in the 80s. You had the sci-fi miniseries on Sci-Fi Channel in the late 90s, early 2000s, but those weren't really accessible to general audiences. Um, what I think is great about Dune is Dune has these strong religious symbolism that I think, Eric, you've made the point about Indiana Jones and the strength of Indiana Jones using that religious imagery. And I think that's where Dune is strong. I also think that what's fascinating with Dune is that Actually, the women are some of the most powerful characters in that story. Uh, the Bene Gesserit, the, the sort of order that is controlling things, while Timothy Chalamet characters, or T Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul, is, is sort of this Christ figure. At the heart of the story are these women that are sort of orchestrating things, and I think that's really fascinating and something that can often get missed in that story. Yeah, I, uh, I'm glad you brought up Indiana Jones because that was uh, – my general review of, of Dial of Destiny is uh, it, it's not a great movie. Um, it's an all right movie. I had a good enough time at it. It was a little bit too long. Um, a lot of – a lot of the conversation around it uh, I found to be – almost entirely disconnected from the film itself because a lot of it had to do with whether, you know, you liked Phoebe Waller-Bridge or you don't like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And uh, I don't mind her. I actually quite enjoyed, um, uh, why can I not think? Fleabag. Fleabag. Uh, Incredible. But if you you either like, if, if you liked her going into it, you, she wasn't an, a problem for the film. If you disliked her going into it, you were going to dislike her coming out of the film. It, 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 that part really didn't matter. But the thing that I have found about the, the the last two Indiana Jones films as compared to the original trilogy of Indiana Jones films is as they have gotten away from religious mysticism being the source of the, you know, the MacGuffin in the film, I think they've become less compelling. Uh, we, we do not need to rehash uh, the choice to go with aliens as um, the uh, the source of the mysticism in, in the fourth film. Um, and in this one, it is kind of to be much more characteristic of our times that it is essentially math and science is, uh, is, is what is God in this film. But what the reason that I think the first three Indiana Jones films work so well is because e even if you are an atheist, you can accept or reject the, uh, the storytelling on its own terms. Either you think that like, well, this is all just kind of made up and it's fantasy and it's no different than watching, you know, Star Wars and the power of the force and all of that. So whatever. And the Ark of the Covenant and, um, you know, the Cup of Christ and the, uh, the you know, Hindu uh, uh, mysticism that's in and surrounding Temple of Doom. You could just kind of accept or reject that, and it's a fine storytelling thing. I, I, but I think as they've gotten away from that, the stories have become less compelling. There are plenty of other reasons why the last two Indiana Jones films failed as, as much as they did. Um, 
I also tend to be of the mind that they should have treated this more like the James Bond franchise, that after the original trilogy, we should have gotten a new actor playing Indiana Jones every decade or so if they wanted to continue making these these films. Um, but I, I, I think the removal of the more traditionally understood religious elements from those films is, to me, very much tied up in its, in its failure. One other point on one of the things we've been talking about uh, it, it's kind of interesting to me how much of a lot of this to me is a marketing failure um, and a failure to understand who the audience for the film is along the lines of what you've been talking about, Titus, that it is it is perfectly fine to have films that are targeted to a more male audience or a more female audience. I, I think there's an interesting split in the at least from my where I'm coming out on this uh which of those two films we've talked about, Oppenheimer and Dune, I went and saw Dune on my own, the first one. Uh, I'll probably just go to the theater and see the second Dune on, on my own when it comes out. I am dragging my wife to see Oppenheimer this coming weekend. Um, she likes Christopher Nolan films. So, like you know, again, you can have some cross in that audience, but I don't think there's anything wrong. And in fact... You know, there is no product. I, I say this all the time here at the Acton Institute when we're talking about what we're working on. There is no product that's for everyone. Anytime that the answer to who's the audience for this is everybody, uh, you have failed and you're going to create a product that is going to please nobody because you're trying to please everyone. And I think rather than just being honest about who these films are targeted to, because there's something now seemingly impolitic about admitting that this is more of a film for men or more of a film for women or more of a film for, you know, even, you know, adult women over a certain age who are married. You know, there's you, you can get much more micro targeted in the audience like that. But we now view it almost as having some kind of an implicit insult to other groups of people that are excluded from that audience. So there's a social compulsion to want to make them films for, say, they're films for everyone or everyone should enjoy it equally when that's just not going to be the case. And people have different tastes. They have different interests. Some of those fall along gender lines. Some of them fall along a whole bunch of different other uh parts of people's humanity and their personality. It's fine to admit that. Uh, and the one uh, one other thing, uh, also since we brought about uh, brought up uh, Denis Villeneuve and, and his uh, his craft along the the Dune films and all of that. Going back to what you were saying, Titus, about the social messaging of a lot of films, um, especially when we look at what Disney has been doing over the last number number of years and now what we're seeing surrounding the production of the Marvels. I made this point last week and I'm going to make it again. One of the things in addition to the marketing failure, I think, is just we're, we're lacking. There, there are examples out there. I don't want to dismiss that of good storytelling, but we're missing out on so much good storytelling. And I use Denis Villeneuve's Arrival as an example of this, of a film that I think is enjoyable entirely on its own terms. I watched it actually over the weekend. Um, it is, a, I think, a, a beautiful film. It is beautifully scored. It is well acted. I think it is well done. And it is an interesting story. But I, I have maintained ever since the first time that I saw it, it is one of the most compelling pro-life films that I have ever seen. And, you know, knowing what I know about the author of the short story that it was based on, this is not some religious or ideological conservative setting out to tell a pro-life story. Why did he tell the story this way? 
because it's a good and interesting and compelling story. And it has that message in there. If you want to move a little below the surface, you can find that clearly. But what it doesn't do, it does not hit you over the head with the message like it is a sledgehammer, which I think takes away from the enjoyment that people want in films. When they go to see a movie, they want to enjoy the film and you can, in cases like Oppenheimer, you can extrapolate out a lot of meaning from it. Um, even from something like Arrival, you can do that too. You don't have to, but you also can. It is there. And I think uh, this is why it is people like Villeneuve, it is people like, uh, of course, Steven Spielberg can still bring people back to the theater, but Christopher Nolan, who have not only uh, a great understanding of their craft in filmmaking, but are great storytellers and some of the, the really shining examples of that in Hollywood left today. I think uh, broadly I agree with you, but um, if I were you, I, I'd revise some, some of this opinion. I'm actually perfectly fine with uh, people who make movies, the message of which beats you over the head. I think uh, often enough audiences will enjoy it. I have found myself sometimes enjoying them. I think we have... Uh, an odd prejudice in this case that we would like the movies to be nuanced and sophisticated and uh, we want things to be in the subtext under the surface and so on. Uh, I'm not sure that's uh, actually the, there's any future in that. Uh, I I think people uh, who are perhaps in the, so involved in storytelling as we are, uh, prefer it, but there's no evidence that the audience is with us on any of this. I would uh, much rather have movies that the American audience loves and that give those of us who want to sit and think about it and talk about it on podcasts uh, endlessly. Uh, they give us something as well, but we're not the primary audience. Uh, I speak not just as a movie critic, but I do podcasts. I've done more than 200 podcasts. I'm, I'm, uh, I love uh, talking about the movie for an hour, but I do not delude myself that that's uh, what the director primarily intended. He primarily intended that the audience be amazed in the theaters. And the abandonment of that has led to the, the sort of mediocrity that Marvel endlessly sells, that nobody really quite cares about, but everybody sort of turns up for. That's because the American audience has been abandoned by people who think they're chasing after superior, sophisticated storytelling. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of Villeneuve, but I've, it has not escaped me that his movies lose money. Uh, and that's, at some point, it becomes the judgment of the audience on you. Now, uh, I, I speak as an unpopular figure. I think you can see here by me speak for a, a bit and realize, okay, this is an unpopular guy. But I don't think uh, people who run around with blockbuster budgets should share my opinions. I would rather Villeneuve take much more care to make a Dune movie that men will actually want to see, and therefore they'll go to the theater and see it. Because if you look at it, uh, he didn't do it. The numbers are not there. And, uh, you know, there are further specific things one could say, you know, do you want a movie to do repeat business? Then you make it a woman's movie because this is America. And uh, if you want an example of that, the, there's, there's the one that's on top of uh, Hollywood history, Titanic. The woman's movie in America in my lifetime, women would go see it again and again and again and again and then buy the VHS, and I'm sure it's also sold vast fortunes in discs once those became available, so on and so forth. That's uh, Men are not actually going to do that. It, it's weird, but uh, there's a reason directors, artists are moving away from men as an audience. They're not going to behave this way. 
And so it actually is harder to market things to men for repeat uh, customs. It's tricky. All of these things are somewhat difficult, but you need that audience of men to keep enough of an audience going to justify a blockbuster budget. And uh, so uh, I, I take partial exception to this thing. Men will enjoy a much harsher, uh, much more straightforward form of storytelling, and they should get it. Uh, you know, it's for the good of the country, if not for our personal preferences. But uh, with respect to this other issue, the storytellers who can get people into the theater, I agree with what you said before, that some of this just means uh, there are a lot of unmarried women in America and they might like a certain kind of entertainment and they should get it. It's going to be better for everybody. And there's a lot of married women in America who like another kind of entertainment and they should also get it. It's better for everybody if we could have a kind of entertainment that's segmented that way, but we cannot. Because uh, in terms of press, uh, there, there's a vast liberal bias that has led to the situation where, in fact, the tastes of married American women are unacceptable. They remind people that uh, married American women vote Republican and unmarried women vote Democrat. And people who think you can have these massive political facts that are part of people's ways of life, then not have consequences for entertainment. Those kinds of people uh, live in a Steven Spielberg movie. And uh, I tell you, this Steven Spielberg himself uh, is somehow uh, suffering from this drama. He has made 10 years of movies that nobody wants to watch compared to his previous successes. And, and I don't mean go back to the 80s and ED. I mean go back to War of the Worlds and Minority Report. Uh, he could still make impressive, very successful movies uh, in the 2000s. But since he has turned into a kind of liberal school, doing kind of a silly historical drama style of movie, and it's uh, unhelpful for everybody involved. So it's um, it, it's much harder to have storytellers when you have, you have this incredibly uh, you know censorious and mediocre and kind of angry style of uh, movie criticism, but also just opinion in in liberal industries. It's just very very hard. Uh, there is not any diversity of opinion about storytelling in. Um, in Hollywood. In fact, if you want to destroy Christopher Nolan's career, just you just have to get him on Ben Shapiro's show or any of the kind yeah, of uh, yeah. pop media that conservatives do. You know, Ben Shapiro is just as silly as anybody who is popular on the left. But the thing is, the people on the left are tolerable, and if somebody shows up on Ben Shapiro's show, he's dead. And that's why you can't have diversity in storytelling, and only when conservatives will say, look, we will become tastemakers. We can speak respectfully but forcefully for a lot of audience in America. And if we do so, then we will legitimate diversity of uh, artistic endeavor and artistic perspective in our entertainment industries. And if we don't do that, if we abandon Hollywood, then in fact, all you get is the stuff that we endlessly complain about. Uh, Daniel, I'm going to go to you real quick, but uh, to drive home the point about uh, different films for different audiences, uh, there's a movie that probably neither of you have heard about or you've only heard about, Daniel, because I've referenced it before. Uh, it's this 1999 mockumentary called The Mating Habits of the Earthbound Human, which stars uh, Mackenzie Aston and Carmen Electra and is narrated by David Hyde Pierce as the voice of these aliens who are making a, fa a, a documentary about mating and dating amongst human beings. And uh, the, the point about movies is they talk about them going to see projections on cave walls. And uh, the men of the species like uh, 
uh, or the, the females of the species like um, stories about one person dying very slowly. And the males of the species like uh, stories of many people dying very quickly. Uh, but again, there is a difference in audience or films, and it's perfectly fine to admit that. Yeah. And I think, too, you see that, generally speaking, audiences do like simple things. I mean, Big Bang Theory is one of the biggest television shows of the past 20 years, getting millions upon millions of viewers as compared to, you know, other shows like Succession getting two, three million viewers a night on HBO, that sort of thing. Which only the readers and fans of The New Yorker enjoy. I count me among those. Um, but then you look at the fact that Hollywood just doesn't necessarily know when they have a hit on their hands or when something might break big. And, you know, recently that's been something like Sound of Freedom. Yeah, I do want to get to that. But that, that is, you know, I always go back to this point that Rob Long makes about, you know, nobody in Hollywood knows if anything is going to be a hit. You know, it, everything happens accidentally. Um, you know, they, they like to pretend that they know what is going to be a success and what is not. And to, to your point about succession, I always come back to this crate. And if I uh, can find it, I know the weekly standard is archived somewhere. Uh, Sonny Bunch wrote this really great piece a number of years ago about the loss of you know, entertainment monoculture that we are, you know, we are in this era as we is so often talked about, especially when it comes to television, this golden age of television content, right? Which by mostly people mean streaming content now or what has come up around the same time there. Uh, but it is being consumed by such small niche audiences, like arguably, you know, the biggest show of the last 15 years was Game of Thrones, which saw an absolute fraction of the final episode of MASH. You know, I think it was 70% of televisions in America were tuned at. Again, different cultural era. There were fewer television channels. There were fewer offerings out there. Um, even, you know, the end of Cheers is probably another perfect example of this. We've lost that cultural commonality around this because we've done the same thing too where you have to play this game now with other people of okay are you watching this show how much of it have you seen okay so we can talk about it up till this point in part because you get these different uh, differentiated release schedules where you get netflix that drops them all at the same time and then you have hbo which still drips them out once a week hbo the last producer out there who seems to understand that if you take something that you consider to be prestige and you stick it at 9 p.m. on a Sunday night, people will spend Monday talking about it. It's a smaller group of people doing that now. But at least they understand that from a distribution perspective. But we didn't used to have to play this game of figuring out, one, are we even watching the same things? Have we watched the same amount of it? And how much can we talk about it? It is, it is a different game now. If I can find that Sunny Bunch piece, I think I can. I'll put it in the show notes. But Titus, you also reviewed, and I think this would be a good place to close it out. Um, I guess a surprisingly successful film um, has been this uh, Sound of Freedom which is a story about a guy named uh, Tim Ballard and his efforts to um, interdict uh, the victims of uh, child trafficking, starring Jim Caviezel, who uh, people will remember from having played Jesus Christ in the pa Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Uh, and also a quick shout out for his performance in a very underrated CBS series called Person of Interest, uh, which I loved and thought was great. Uh, had a really fun time with that show. And again, there's a Nolan connection there, too. Jonathan Nolan and J.J. Abrams are the creators of that show. It remind me a lot of the X-Files in that there's 
You can watch any individual episode for the number of the week, the person of the week they're trying to help or save or stop. But there's this bigger overarching story arc that carries through all the seasons. Uh, Titus, you reviewed uh, Sound of Freedom for us. What were your thoughts about that film and particularly about the success of uh, of this film, which, you know, we've talked about the monolithic leftward nature of Hollywood, uh, certainly because they don't see any hits coming, as we just mentioned, uh, didn't see this hit coming, but certainly I would think didn't want this film to be the kind of hit that it has been. Yeah, I think that's certainly true that it's a film that has succeed, succeeded despite um, educated elite opinion, which is overwhelmingly liberal if it becomes vocal. And the movie has gotten some very nasty reviews by people who seem to be flirting with madness. It's just the story of this guy who is trying to save kids from being uh, trafficked for uh, sex. It's you know, it's if there's one thing that whether you're liberal or conservative, you can agree it's evil, uh, and and that's abusing children, and that's what the movie is about, and it's a movie that hits you over the head with it, and it succeeded for that reason. It's uh, inconceivable to see a protagonist like Jim Caviezel's based on a true story. I am not a journalist in this regard, so I don't know exactly what goes on, and it's a subject that I guess all of us avoid, but uh, because it's so ugly. But it seems to be a true story. This guy has an organization that saves children. They told his story, Tim Ballard. Jim Caviezel played him. It's not uh, the nuanced, sophisticated portrayal that people who like to talk about things like to talk about. But it is a very interesting portrayal of a man who, because he feels it's his duty, uh, will, will delve into this terrible, miserable stuff. Uh, it's worth thinking about. His performance has been described to me as wooden. I am. Uh, I think that's uh, another way of saying that it's a stoic portrayal, and I don't think people notice that. There's there might not be another way to do it. The whole point is that this guy has to confront very very ugly things, and he has to get very close to them. And uh, what can he do except uh, not showing if it has? He has to somehow hold on to his self control and not do something uh, horrifying. It's. Um, it's, uh, so I don't believe it is a bad portrayal, and I think the character, at any rate, gets across and is much more impressive than people are willing to admit. People just do not wish to admit that a simple character could be very interesting, that it might make you think about. And, uh, and, and that's a, a massive failure of our criticism. But uh, as to the success of the movie, it's, it's strange. It, it, the movie cost very little, maybe $15 million, and it's already grossed more than $100 million in America. But it is unlike other movies. It is somehow involved in a, what is known as a paid-forward system. People buy tickets for other people to see the movie. And then there's a question about, well, did people go see the movie? Now, I would like theaters to be saved. So my position is I don't care if the theaters are empty. If it keeps the business going for another year, we'll figure something out. But since I'm not uh, uh, paid to be this kind of journalist, I do not have this kind of answer. How many people actually saw it? Uh, I think I've heard from lots of people who did see it, and most of them enjoyed it because they were conservative Christians. And that's the point. It's the only movie for conservative Christians in America. It's an audience that doesn't really demand movies. And uh, what it uh, gets is things like uh, pure films, if you have heard of that uh, uh, producer, uh, that system. And there are such things like that, but they tend to be... Uh, uninspiring, and they neither have stars like Jim Caviezel nor very impressive stories. Uh, but, uh, you know, it used to be somewhat different since you, you, you're you right, Jim Caviezel is the, uh, 
played Jesus in Passion of the Christ. This did not lead to a big career as you might think it would for a movie that was an enormous success. It, it's worth remembering. Americans paid for more than $400 million of tickets to that movie, which was independently financed by Mel Gibson because nobody would want to give him money to do this thing. That's a movie that beats you over the head with the message that Jesus is the innocent victim of all the injustice mankind is prone to. Uh, there's nothing subtle about it. People loved it. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people cried in the theaters, but they loved it. And uh, Americans just don't get to see those kinds of movies because few people want to make them and they don't have any money. It's uh, it's odd, but there it is. It's still the case that uh, there are very, very few directors. It used to be Mel Gibson who would make movies for Christians. Uh, I also recommend his his war movie about World War II, Hacksaw Ridge, about a conscientious objector, also a true story, a Medal of Honor uh, awardee. And again, uh, you know, religion and war and America and the complexities of the situation. But uh, it's also a simple, straightforward story, too shocking perhaps to believe, but true and very powerful when you see it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with those movies. And frankly, a lot of what makes the monoculture is based on that. What is it that you can get the all Americans to agree on, or most at least? If you don't make those stories, how are these things going to happen? If uh, you prefer storytelling that is oddly sophisticated or very specialized to a niche interest, then, I mean, there are consequences for that too. We're not going to have an American audience anymore. So uh, probably uh, it, it's, it's a big problem that the American audience has been quite this split. Uh, it, it's not, a, I don't think, primarily a matter of the how many screens or TVs or TV streamers we have. I think it's primarily a matter of what happened to the society. I don't believe the economic or the business explanation is the true one. I think that the social and moral explanation is the true one. Uh, people are just separated in all of these sorts of ways. And therefore, in that way also, uh, there, there's no evidence at any rate as far as sociologists can figure it out that the entertainment has caused American society to separate. The American society's separation various niches is older than this new thing with entertainment. So I think the causality probably runs the other way from the sociological point of view also. And, uh, you know, there's a lot for people to think about if they think, uh, as we have tried here to do, about what is successful and what's a failure, what's happening with entertainment, because this is about the American people ultimately. It's, uh, you know, you want everybody to have a, a good time, but they will quarrel even about what that is. They will quarrel about whether it's acceptable to have fun with this story or to even see this kind of movie in the theater. And some will get, uh, in some ways, uh, banned or somehow uh, shadow banned or blackballed by the business or whatnot. It's going to get weird. Uh, these, these opinions actually really do matter. And only when people will say it's not just about having fun, we think this is good. We think there's something admirable here and we'll speak up about it. Only then will we have a chance to do this. Somehow diversity of entertainment itself depends on a shared, deeper agreement about what we find admirable. And I guess that would also be true if we have comedies anymore of what we find laughable. That's the other issue that uh, as we become very, very nice and censorious, it's hard to say, okay, what is something we can laugh at? Turns out there are not a lot of answers to that that people will uh, take a risk on. So we don't have comedy as a well, genre and it, anymore. And it, and it kind of gets, uh, it, it avoids the reality of laughter and comedy, which is it is primarily an involuntary reaction to what our brain triggers, right? So, you know, the, and this is why I think you get in a different form of entertainment now in something like the, uh, the late night shows. And I think there's, 
um, their own. We have our own right wing versions of this as well, where it's just it's it's the term is clapter, where it's supposed to engender this applause of approval and maybe some kind of chuckles at the structure of it being like a joke. But it's not supposed to provoke that involuntary reaction of laughter. I mean, that that is the thing about, and this is why you get so dangerous when you try to get around policing what people can and cannot find funny. We are in so many ways just not in control of what we find funny and what we do not find funny. And when you try to, you know, in a, in a way, punish people for the thing that just triggers this involuntary reaction, you're going to get a kind of dark timeline. And I think this is one of the reasons why there are so few successful comedies that you can point to over the last, I don't know, decade or so. Um, you've really seen a fall off in the quality of comedy and it's uh, a bit of a disappointment, um, but we can certainly visit that the next time uh, that we have you on, Titus. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes where you're going to find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Daniel. Thanks to Titus. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.